Hello, and welcome to the Marketing Times Analytics Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Safranes, and today I'm on with Martina Matei. Martina, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, Alex. Hi, everyone. Uh, thank you for having me. Um, yes, I am Martina Matei, and I am currently the manager of the marketing analytics team in IBM's Marketing Services Center in Bucharest, and I also have an active role in the data privacy team at IBM. Wow, that's really cool. We've had guests from IBM on before, especially when I was there, but it was always US-based. And so you are in Bucharest, um, which is really cool. So, I, I mean, tell me about how it's like to market in Europe and how, what maybe some of the differences are from marketing in the US. Yeah, so, um, well, it's quite an experience to be located in Romania and to work with U.S. and actually with the entire globe (laughs) because IBM is a global company. And although the headquarters are in U.S., they have quite a big marketing team all around the world and some marketing centers in each of the geographies in Europe, in Asia, in Latin America. Um, And in the nine and a half years since I've joined IBM, I have done marketing for um, Germany, Austria and Switzerland for the DACH region. I have done marketing for Europe, and I also have done marketing at global level. And um, yeah, I think that nowadays, if we talk about global companies, there is a lot of standardization involved, and there aren't actually significant differences between the marketing that IBM is doing in US and marketing that is done in China or in Germany or in France. And I actually think that this is a a positive aspect because when we talk about global brands, the global presence needs to be coherent and cohesive. So wherever we are in the world, the brand needs to look the same and to feel the same and to sound the same. So the strategy that the big companies have is to run the same marketing campaigns or to have the same marketing all over the world. Of course, there are some adjustments when localizing the marketing campaigns adjustments for market specifics but these are usually minor adjustments that's really interesting and we'll talk about that more in a bit i want to ask first about your background um you know how did you, what was your education how did you get to your current role um yeah and, and a little bit about what you're doing right now of course yeah so um i have always been uh, passionate about marketing because my mother was actually working in marketing and I thought that her job is so glamorous and meeting interesting people and doing advertising. So I always wanted to study marketing, which I did. Um, I got my bachelor in marketing. I got my master's degree in marketing and I have actually worked in marketing my entire life. Um, I started with an internship in a a car manufacturer, then I moved to FMCG, to a company that produced sparkling wine and spirits in Romania, and then I transitioned to, to IBM, to B2B marketing. I moved from B2C to B2B. And um, in IBM, I started on a junior role. It was called Demand Programs Professional back then. And it was a a marketing role that did a bit of everything because back in 2012, you could 
have a role that did campaign execution and digital and marketing automation and reporting and events. <laughs> it was possible back, back then, but then marketing evolved. The roles evolved and we got a separation of duties, let's put it like this. And we had marketing teams who had a campaign manager and a digital strategist and a marketing automation specialist and a marketing analytics specialist working together to bring campaigns into market and optimize them and bring better results. I was a campaign manager. Then I was a digital strategist always working for uh, DACH, for Germany, Austria, and Switzerland. And um, afterwards, there was an opportunity to move to a management role in the marketing analytics team that was located in Bucharest. And I applied for that role, and they selected me for it. Although um, I didn't have a technical analytics background so I couldn't query the database back in the day I I'm not very good at querying it right now <laughs> four years later but I think that what what got me the role was the fact that I had a um, very significant end user experience in analytics because I was a very keen user of all the analytics tools that were available back in the day and what I uh, what I actually brought to the team was this end user perspective, um, helping the analytics team to come with um, more significant analysis from the database or from the available tools to address the needs of the other team members, like campaign manager, digital strategist, and so on. And I think I did a pretty good job with this, <laughs> modesty aside. Interesting. So I'm curious, when you're talking about the user side of analytics, what are some things that maybe like features that you look for or capabilities um, when you're running a marketing campaign that you want to see, or maybe some metrics that you that you follow that, that you find particularly effective um, when determining a marketing success? Like, what are some things that you look for as that end user of marketing analytics? Well, what I like to see is data from the beginning till the end of the marketing funnel. So I want to see how the marketing tactics that I am using in my marketing campaign are performing, starting from, I don't know, paid media impressions in paid media to web visits to engaged visits to responses leads i want to see how many leads how many mqls i've generated and then if those leads have been closed or not so i am interested to see the the revenue that was generated by my campaign. So it's not only the upper funnel metrics like click-through rate and visits and so on, but it's also metrics like <clears throat> revenue generated, new pipe that I have generated with my campaign and in the end won revenue. Mm -hmm. And besides that, so I like to have, I always like to have this bigger picture to see how the um, tactics in my campaign uh, connect with one another and what results they are generating. And I also love to have deep dives on each metric. <laughs> um, and this capability in analytics has evolved and is still evolving. For example, I don't know, six or seven years ago, I couldn't see the web pages that a customer was, I couldn't see the web pages that a customer that had entered 
IBM.com as a result of my campaign had been visiting. I could only see the first page he landed on, but I couldn't see the second page he went to or the third or the fourth. And I couldn't see where he, where was that point when he turned into a response and became an MQL. Um, and this is possible now. And I am sure that the marketing analytics capabilities will evolve even more. I'm actually very curious to see how far marketing analytics can go in the next 30 years. Yeah, and I, I definitely want to ask about that. And to lead up to it, I want to ask about the past. So how has marketing analytics evolved in complexity over time? I think that my first encounter with marketing analytics was in 2007 when I started my internship um, while studying for my master's degree. Um, and I worked for a Ford back then for the car manufacturer. And um, in the marketing team, they wanted to measure the effectiveness of their advertising investment in, in different regions of Spain. I was in Spain back then. And they had um, an Excel file <laughs> where they had all the data. Uh, sometimes I think that Excel is the, is the best analytics tool out there still now in 2022. Um, and they had the car dealers from all over Spain report each day how many visits they had in their dealership and how many people have asked for more information about certain car brands. They gathered all that information. I received each day that information in an Excel, and I had to look for spikes in interest for certain car brands. And I would correlate that interest with the investment in advertising that they had done in that certain region in those specific days or in that specific time frame because the hypothesis was that I don't know if you were doing advertising in Madrid for uh, Ford Focus then the dealerships would receive more interest during that time frame for Ford Focus that was the best they could have back then. And I still think it's a good idea. But I am sure that um, nowadays there are better tools than Excel for uh, analyzing this data. Um, then, I don't know, uh, when I joined IBM, we could see the revenue that was generated by several marketing tactics. And that was it. Then um, it evolved into seeing the marketing funnel. Then it evolved to seeing the marketing funnel and having deep dives on each um, area of the funnel. And actually with the evolution of marketing automation tools and the introduction of tags and pixels, you can track and measure pretty much everything nowadays. That's interesting. And I think it's spot on. Um, and I want to ask about one thing you said, which I actually agree with, which is about Excel analytics being the best even in this year. So can you explain a little bit more about why you feel that way? I think Excel is the easiest to use. Um, of course, you can't create dashboards in Excel like you can create them in Tableau or in Power BI. But Excel is there for everyone to use. Um, and it's very straightforward and hands-on. And it is used for, 
by each role in the company, from the junior to the CEO. Um, and it also has quite a lot capabilities to analyze data and functions for that. That's why I think that it is the most used analytics tool. <laughs> and I think it will be like this for some years from now on. I agree. It's the, the value of analytics is comprised of two factors. It's the data and the accessibility. And if you have something that's like not really that accessible, like a Tableau dashboard, maybe maybe if you have the online web viewer like the like something you can share it out on it's much more accessible let's say you don't let's say you just have a tableau file that's not very accessible so even if you have like the most valuable data it's not going to make a big impact if you take an excel spreadsheet everybody has excel on their computer it's basically built in so it does you can have much smaller value data but compounded over how accessible it is makes it such a more powerful analytics tool yeah, I totally agree with that. As you transitioned to being a manager, what what were the kind of skills you had to develop? What surprised you about that transition? It wasn't such a great surprise because I used to be team leader before becoming a manager. So I was the team leader of the digital strategies team that was working for DAH. I, I had some experience in working with people. Although the team leader role is quite different from a manager role and as a manager role, as a manager, you have a lot more responsibility than as a team leader. Um, I think that the most important thing that I had to, to learn was to foster teamwork. And I will tell you why. Because um, when I joined the team, I didn't have that technical background that everybody else in my team was having. And when they had a technical blocker, I wasn't able to guide them. That's why I had to rely on the collaboration between them so that things would move on and we could pass those blockers. And that's why fostering collaboration and fostering teamwork was the, the most important thing that I, that I had to, to learn and to also put into practice. And... Well, I did this by, I don't know, having group meetings, team meetings where everybody would share their work, creating a, a relaxed and safe environment where everybody could share the projects they were working on, the struggles they were having, the solutions that they found to the struggles. And um, in the end, I think it was a success because uh, I saw that um, the team members starting uh, working together more than they used to and the ones that had more experience helped the ones that had less experience in the team. And besides that, well... I don't know, empowering the team members to, to do their best and supporting them in all the struggles that they were having with stakeholders or with other team members. And actually, I think I, I never stopped learning. I'm still learning how to be a manager. I don't think I'll ever stop. Or when I'll stop, it won't be that interesting. <laughs> as it is right now. That's very interesting. It sounds like um, like there's a lot of care that you put into being a manager. And it's it's really about looking after the your team and, and being there for them and, and making sure that 
that their questions are being answered and the blockers are being removed. It's very cool. Yeah, um, thanks. Yes, I, I actually think that this is the role of a manager to get the team to do their best work. Because I, I can't be a good manager if I don't have a good team. And I can't have a good team if I don't support them in any way they need to be supported. Yeah, simple as that. Yeah, yeah. It, it's common sense, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, can you explain how internal consulting works and what personality type would work best for that kind of role? Well, internal consulting. Um, the role in the analytics, so the analytics team of course it's a technical team but their role actually is to be analytics consultants and the analytics consultants are those people that the marketing team turns to when they want to take data-driven decisions and the analytics consultants need to help the stakeholders figure out and crystallize what what exactly it is that they are looking for. Because in many cases, you have a stakeholder that is asking you for, uh, I don't know, he wants to see the results of a campaign, but in fact, he actually needs a lot more than that, or he needs to have a different angle uh, from which he or she is looking at the data. That's why I think that it is very important in this role of analytics consultant to be a a good listener. Besides having all the technical skills, you also need some people skills. Because, yeah, we work with data, but in the end, we also work with people. (laughs) And when you create something for people, your stakeholders, which are people, you need to understand how people work. And active listening, I think it's the it's the greatest skill that a consultant can have to really understand what the client, what the stakeholder is looking for. And besides that, I think that a good consultant is also a very good data storyteller who can read between the lines and see the bigger picture and also transmit this bigger picture to the audience that they are having. So it's a combination between active listening and data storytelling. Besides that, I think it is also important to, or at least it it brings a lot of satisfaction (laughs) when you um, empower the the stakeholders, when you empower your clients to look at the data themselves. Because there are plenty of analytics tools that are self-service, at least in IBM and I'm sure in many other companies. And actually everyone in the company has access to that data, but many of them don't know exactly how to read the data or how to extract information from the dashboards. So at least from my perspective, um, it is very important to teach your clients and to empower them to look at the data themselves. At least in some situations when it would be a lot faster than asking an analytics consultant to come up with an analysis that is already partially at least available in the self-service tools. So I want to go back to the two skills that you laid out for the internal consultant. 
one being an active listener and two being a good data storyteller. So what are some ways to build those skills? If you want to get into this kind of a role, how do you get better at listening? Well, this takes practice. <laughs> I don't, there's not much theory to help you. There is a lot of practice that you need to do. And for example, when you, when you enter a, a discussion with a client, with a stakeholder, you need to focus a lot on what that person is telling you and be open to everything that the client is telling you. And don't, don't go into that discussion with any prejudice mm -hmm. or with any solutions. Just go and listen. And if you manage to be successful in this exercise of listening, you will also come up with questions for that client for a better understanding of their situation on end of what they want to achieve. Um, it sounds very easy, but in fact, it is very difficult <laughs> because we always tend to to have an idea of what we need to do and we go into meetings with a solution for a problem that we think we know. But if we actually engage in active listening, we might find out that the problem is different and the solution that we had at the beginning needs to be changed. And I think that a good exercise is also to... Um, to practice act active listening with your friends and your family besides doing this at work because, I don't know, maybe sometimes we talk more with our friends and our family than we do with some certain clients or stakeholders. Um, I hope we talk more with mm -hmm. our family than with <laughs> our clients. And, um, yeah, it's a, it's a very good practice. Mm-hmm. That's, I was going to say, this sounds like you could put it into your personal, you could use it in your personal life. And that's really powerful. It is. And it is as difficult in personal life as it is at work. Mm -hmm. I'm definitely going to put that into practice more. I'm going to focus on it now. Um, and, and for the second skill, so being a good data storyteller, how does that, how do you develop that skill? To be able to create a good story, you need to know the, the issue that you are talking about. Yeah, so it all starts with active listening. You need to listen to, to realize which is the actual uh, issue, the problem statement that the, the client is having. Then you need to do the analysis and present the data, tell the story of the data. Um, I think that marketing analytics people or uh, analytics people in general need to understand that their audience is not always as data savvy as they are. Or they are not interested in the technical details. Of course, it may have been a technical challenge to pull that data that you are presenting from the database, but the executive is not interested in your technical challenges. He is interested in seeing the results of your analysis because this is his role. It's not because he doesn't value your work. It's just that he has other goals than you do. And that's why for data storytelling, I think it is very important to know your audience, who are you talking to, and what does your audience want to, to find out from you so that you can tailor your message. Um, 
for the specific needs of your audience. You need to be client-centric, like marketing in general. In marketing, you need to be client-centric. In marketing analytics, you also need to be client-centric. For a good data storytelling, there are plenty of online uh, courses and trainings. I did a lot of trainings on that. My team has done also um, there are data visualization trainings and data visualization techniques. Um, and there, there are trainings and courses on how you need to build the story in PowerPoint on the slides with the story that needs to be told in the headers of the slides. And then you have deep dives on each slide for the story that you have in the header. So um, this, for this, you also have a lot of theory. Of course, practice is very important, <laughs> but for this, you have more theory at hand than for active listening, which is more about practice. And um, my suggestion to the ones who want to become better data storytellers is to, I don't know, take, on, take a presentation they have already done and try to improve that presentation. And I don't know, pick someone from their team and present it to their colleague and ask for feedback, ask for honest feedback on how the message that they were trying to convey was received. And this way they will have something tangible that they can improve on. Again, it sounds easy, but it's not that easy. <laughs> I'm I'm editing a, a couple presentations right now, so I, I feel you there. I mean, it's, it's night and day uh, differences when you can get somebody else's perspective on a presentation. I feel like I can just keep hitting my head against the wall and trying to optimize a slide. And then if I show it to somebody, they'll, you know, they'll have like a really good insight right off the bat sometimes um, that really changes the, the way that it comes off. Yeah, I think the best advice that I received is that if your audience doesn't understand your slide in 10 seconds, then it's not a good slide. And especially when I need to present uh, multiple sets of data, I um, I work on, on that one slide a lot. It can take days until I get the data in that shape, <laughs> in that form where it is understood in less than 10 seconds. I really like that. Do you have any other advice on presenting uh, and how to give a, a really powerful presentation with data? Keep the details to a minimum. So just present that data that is really important for the stakeholder, for the client. And pay a lot of attention to the, to the layout of the slide, so to the data visualization part. And here we can also talk about I don't know if I should call it a, a, a fashion, <laughs> uh, fashion trends in visualization, because I don't know what was uh, acceptable for a, a chart 10 years ago is no longer acceptable today. The visualization standards have changed. That's why I think that it is the responsibility of a marketing analytics person to always be up to date with the latest visualization trends and apply them. What are some differences in the last decade in data visualization standards? For example, 
So, to be honest, when I look at some um, presentations that I've done 10 years ago, I'm not very proud of myself according to today's standards. Um, but back in the day, they were just fine. Uh, for example, in the, in the charts, um, if you have data values and data labels, you don't need to have the um, data values also on the axis of the chart. So you don't need to show that the um, Y axis goes from zero to 100%. If on each data bar, you state that it's 55%, 60%, 43%. It's just too much information. And the data that is shown on the axis doesn't uh, help the audience in understanding the data better. It's just confusing. Too much data is confusing. That's why I said that keep it as simple as possible. Show the minimum of data on one slide. Um, shades in charts, in bars. They were very popular 10 years ago, but nowadays nobody uses bars with shades. It's, it's just an example or colors, colors change. Um, and you can see that also in the palette that PowerPoint is presenting you because they change the custom palette from time to time. And of course, uh, if, if the company you are working for has a specific color palette, always use that color palette and the agreed font in your presentations. A lot of business, uh, you know, business does, uh, you, you know, creativity is an important part of business, but so is standardization and providing data and insights in a way that's uh, really easy to digest so that the client doesn't have to spend any time figuring out a new format. It's like in a format that they're they're used to, that they recognize. And um, I think that's that's really valuable too. Yeah, and I think you can be extremely creative with a given uh, format. Mm -hmm. You can tell great stories about data within a template. Mm -hmm. within the business template. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the creativity should be channeled towards the content rather than the delivery yeah. vehicle. Exactly. Um, so let's say that you are presenting data to uh, executives. What happens when the analytics or the data don't go the way that those executives were expecting how do you navigate those situations? Hmm. <laughs> That's a tricky question. <laughs> a tricky question with a very simple answer, actually. So I, I always think that it's the, the, the duty of analytics to tell the truth and to present the data as it is even if it is uh, not what the executives are expecting. Because I don't know, it's like going to the, to the doctor, to the physician, and he tells you you have a cold, but you actually have pneumonia. And then in two days you are in the hospital because you weren't told the truth and you weren't given the right treatment. Um, in these situations, when the, when the data or the results that I am presenting are not the most positive ones, I try to present the data and the story behind the data. So how did we get to that point where we have those results? which is the root cause of those results? Why do we have the conversion gaps that we are having? And of course, how could we improve the results? So whenever I'm having, actually this is a general rule, not only when I'm presenting 
data that is unpleasant, um, I always have a positive note in my presentations and I always come with recommendations for improvement because you can always do things better even when things are going well. And I think that I said that it is a tricky question because it's actually a tricky situation when you have to talk about things that didn't go well because people are sometimes afraid or they are ashamed of failure. And in some cases, yes, marketing campaigns that don't bring the expected results may be considered a failure. But I think it is important for the analytics um, person to not present the data as a failure, but at, as a description of the current situation. Here's the data. It is what it is. We got here because this and that happened, and we could improve the results by doing one, two, three. And an, an advice that I received and that I am always passing on is not to, not to use negative words in your presentation and not to judge the situation that you are presenting. Mm -hmm. Don't say that it is bad. The data is bad. The results are bad. The results are these. Mm -hmm. It is a matter of communication. And I also, I'm not saying to sugarcoat anything because, you know, at the beginning I said that it is important to always tell the truth, but it is a matter of perspective. And I think that if you don't use those negative words and you don't judge the situation that you are presenting, you give the audience an opportunity to, to be open to improvement and to be open to finding ways on how to improve the current situation. They will not be blocked and they will not get defensive by hearing negative words or judgment from you. It sounds like routing, you need to route that energy. So when you deliver the results, you need to give them the, the listeners somewhere to put that, like some, somewhere to go with it. Otherwise, you're standing right in front of them. You're the messenger. That's where Don't Shoot the Messenger comes from. Because if you just say, yeah, we messed up, here's the results, then they're just going to be like, well, what do we do? Like, you're, you're just telling us something negative, but you're not giving us any, anything to work on. So I think that's such an important part is to, it's, it's like there's two halves to delivering that story. It's both what did we find and then what should we do next? And um, it's super important to have that second part. What tips do you have on navigating a fight for attribution among marketing and sales organizations? Well, <laughs> well I think my first advice would be to not enter the fight because it's a trap <laughs> and there are no winners in that fight. Oh, <clears throat> yeah, that is a really, really good question because there has always been some tension between sales and marketing in every company, I think, be it small-sized or a global company like, I don't know, Coca-Cola. Um, I think that the main source of this fight 
that is between sales and marketing is the fact that sales sometimes doesn't trust marketing because sales doesn't see the value that marketing brings to the business. And I think that instead of fighting with sales over attribution, it would be better to start providing sales with some marketing information that helps them close deals like, I don't know, client insights, some marketing insights that they don't have access to from their sales perspective that would help them progress the deals and eventually close the deals. And I think that in this way, marketing would be able to build this relationship of trust with sales, showing them that marketing is here to support them, that we are all on the same boat, that marketing's interest is also generating revenue, like sales interest, and that we are not in actually in a in a fight between uh, the marketing and sales organization we are in a fight with our external competitors that should be the fight with the competitors in the marketing not within the organization it's about changing mentality and it is long term i don't think you can achieve this in i don't know a year I don't think you can achieve this in two years. But I think that marketing needs to start working with sales on this so that at one point in time, maybe in three years, there will be this collaboration between marketing and sales instead of this fight, how you call it. And if we talk about marketing attribution per se, I think that it is important for marketing to create some clear and simple rules for attribution that are agreed upon with sales and that are agreed upon with business in general. And I emphasize the word simple because if we have some simple, easy to understand rules, we have a higher chance for the other teams or for the business to understand what marketing is doing, actually, and to have their buy-in on our marketing efforts and the attribution of results for marketing. And actually, we come back to to the uh, collaboration part, uh, to active listening, Marketing should listen to what sales is saying um, and to understand sales point of view so that marketing can support sales in in a better way. And I'm talking here about sales-driven companies, of course. Okay, so why why doesn't sales see marketing's efforts right now? Is it because they only see the leads coming in and they don't know which leads are organic versus influenced by marketing? I think that sales is seeing leads coming in, but sales doesn't have the context surrounding those leads. And if you don't have the context, um, so what has happened to that lead before coming in your queue, um, you might you might be inclined to um, think that it is not of best quality, maybe, or you might be inclined to pay less attention to it than to a lead that has been generated by someone in sales through a discussion between a seller and a representative of your customer. 
And that's why I said that it is important for marketing to provide sales with marketing information and with marketing context that helps sales close the deal or progress the deals. Because this way, marketing would show its true value and it would help the business with that information because the goal of marketing and sales is to generate more revenue for the company in the end. I want to ask about the future and what are some innovations you expect in the marketing and analytics industry in that future? Well, actually, I've been thinking about this for a while now. And especially since I am um, I am active in the data privacy team <laughs> of IBM, um, because I um, I'm I'm really curious how companies will market to an audience that has a very high sense of data privacy, at least in Europe. Maybe in in US it's different, but in Europe, you know, we have the uh, GDPR and the European customers are very keen on protecting their identity and um, they don't accept the cookies on websites so you cannot track them not all of them some of them you cannot serve them personalized ads because of that so i i i don't know where we are going um because i i don't know how companies will market to customers who have ad blockers installed on the web pages, to customers who don't have any patience to watch TV ads because during the commercial breaks, everyone is doing something else and yeah, scrolling down their phones. Um, I think it will be through more experiential marketing, through experience that they provide. I'm very curious to see how VR will evolve in marketing. I think influencer will have a higher and higher role with the evolution of social media, which doesn't seem to stop. And I think that analytics will have more limitations than it has right now, especially because of the of the data privacy regulations or the more restrictive data privacy regulations that will be in the future. Because if if customers don't want to be tracked, you cannot analyze them, right? Well, I, w- I would say you can analyze them in a high-level sense where it's not dependent on the identity of any individual person. I think the part of marketing that's particularly weak uh, to in this data privacy future is retargeting and like lower funnel type of, of uh, tactics. Upper funnel, things like brand development, and you know, like a Super Bowl ad, those I think will only continue to thrive in terms of driving brand awareness because you can do a focus group or something like that and get the feedback of a lot of customers. You don't need to track them individually. You are right. Yeah, so if we talk about brand awareness, brand awareness can still be done through the traditional marketing means, let's say. I think this is my fault because when I think about marketing, I always think about digital marketing campaigns (laughs) because that's what I've done in the past 10 years, (laughs) digital marketing. And 
yes, digital marketing won't be that uh, that easy to track in the future if the data privacy regulations become more restrictive. But yes, brand awareness can be can be created. Yeah. yeah. What What is your take on VR? How do you think that VR will change marketing, if it will change marketing? I think it depends on how bad society gets, because usually th that has always been the premise of VR, is that life's so bad that you, everybody escapes into the cyber world. It's never historically been seen as a positive um, to have like a virtual reality kind of metaverse. So... I'm not sure. I, I think that if society gets worse for any reason, we'll have more VR. I think if society improves, which I'm I'm betting it will improve, I think I don't think we'll have as much VR. I think it'll be more AR. AR. Um, so if I can go to a networking event and have like a augmented reality, I'm sure that could be really cool. Uh, there could be like imagine like a a like a science fair where everybody has little booths and then you could like look at it and see like a bunch of extra information and whatnot. I can imagine it would be really cool. Um, and maybe you could even rent uh, AR glasses at that event. And so it could be enhanced that way. And maybe people could put on VR glasses and show up to that event too, remotely. I don't know. Um, I, I think there, I, I think AR has a lot more uh, potential than VR. In, in terms of real world integration as the as society improves because people I think will want to get out there there's also that vertigo problem um, or something where there's like a natural limit for how long people can stay in VR for before they get dizzy it's like 30 minutes um, and so that's another issue which <laughs> I mean there's it's almost like nature saying to us like don't don't spend all your time in there. <laughs> Go out into the world. That's kind of my take on it. So can a brand advertise in Europe without local languages? So let's say only in English or something. What would the advantages or drawbacks be to doing that? It depends on the brand and it depends on the industry. If we talk about B2C, you need to advertise in local language. Nobody will buy your soap if you have a soap commercial in English while your customers are in Romania. But if we talk about B2B, and especially IT, here things are a bit different. From my experience, I have seen that there are certain markets who are very fond of their language and who are also um, important markets from a revenue perspective for the companies. Like, for example, Germany or France or Italy or Spain. That's why when B2B companies market in those countries, I think they have more chances to be successful if they market in the local language. But for this, you also need to have budget budget for translations and budget for adaptation of your uh, marketing materials to that local language. And I don't know if all companies have this, this budget available. Then I saw uh, um, a marketing analysis that has been done uh, by uh, someone in the marketing analytics team in IBM who had analyzed the um, open rates or the visualizations of different types of assets 
in different languages in uh, Latin America. And they had um, a very interesting insight. They uh, analyzed the audience that was uh, um, reading those assets and they, um, they found out that actually the audience coming from line of business who was accessing assets like white papers and analyst researches and uh, materials of this kind had a better response rate for those materials being in Spanish or in Portuguese, so in the local language. On the other hand, if we talked about uh, um, IT-specific materials like product descriptions and demos and trials and so on, they those had a higher response rate um, when they were in English language. And that is because the IT managers, so the IT audience, is very used to and accustomed to speak, read, and discuss about IT in English. More than the line of business is. So it depends a lot also on your, on your audience on the job role of your audience. And then how do you know how many countries to localize in? Because there's so many different languages. How would you prioritize some over the other? I think you should prioritize according to the potential that you have in that market, to the potential to generate revenue in the market. So if you plan to invest in marketing in Europe, you should prioritize according to those countries where you have the highest potential to close deals. If you have uh, interesting clients in Germany, then it would be great to have uh, all your marketing materials translated into German. Um, if you also plan to market in Romania, let's say, um, it's not necessarily to have the marketing materials um, translated into Romanian because Romania is not such a big market for IT. So maybe in Romania, you could go with the English version because you don't have that much to lose as you would have in Germany. So yeah, I would, I would prioritize according to the potential to generate revenue in the market. If the potential is high, then focus on localizing web pages, marketing materials, everything. And especially if the if the country is very fond of its own language, like Germany is, or France, Italy, Spain, Russia. In Russia, they also have a different alphabet. So yeah, that definitely needs localization. So final question, what are some of the challenges uh, that one can face when localizing advertising in different markets? Oh, I think the biggest challenge is to uh, have inaccurate translations of the materials. Um, that's why I think that it is very important to use a, a translation agency that has native speakers who translate the materials, who can adapt the text in English to that specific language. Because I, for one, have seen translations from English to German who don't make any sense in German or are 
funny when they are not supposed to be. So I, I think this is the greatest challenge to find an agency that can adapt the English text to the local language. Because in, in translations, it's not always about translating the words. It's almost always about translating the meaning of the content. It's more than just words. And you also need to be aware of uh, uh, cultural um, challenges, although there is not such a high difference between Europe and the U.S., what culture is about. Um, I mean, th this has been such an interesting conversation, Martina. Thank you again for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. It was an interesting experience for me, too. Awesome. And thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll talk to you soon.